Good evening. Nice to see you all here. Um, thank you very much for coming. And we are so glad that you will be able to join us for the lecture on Blinky Palermo uh, with uh, art historian Susan Hudson. Uh, Susan is a contributor to the exhibition catalog for Blinky Palermo Retrospective 1964 to 1977. And she will discuss the artist's time in the United States and the context it provided for his work. We very much hope that all of you had a chance to see Blinky Palermo fabulously installed exhibition and wonderful work. As you may all know, this is a closing lecture before the exhibition closes on Sunday, May 15. Susan Hansen is currently a research fellow at the Whitney Museum of American Art. She's also assistant professor of modern art and contemporary art at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. After the completion of her fellowship, she will be joining the faculty at the University of Southern California. She is co-founder of the Contemporary Art Think Tank and president of the Society of Contemporary Art Historians, an affiliate society of the College Art Association. In addition to her work as art historian, she's an active critic her work has appeared in international exhibition catalogs and many publications such as Parquet, Flesh Art, Art Journal, and she's also a regular contributor to Art Forum. Susan also published a book, Robert Ryman, Used Paint, which came out with MIT Press in 2009, and she's currently working on a manuscript dealing with abstraction and spirituality in 1960s America, as well as contemporary art 1989 to present, which she co-authored and co-edited with Alexander Dubanze, who is also here this evening with us. Please help me to welcome Susan Hudson. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you for having me here, and thank you for coming. Is the volume good? Is this good in the back? Okay, great. So let me just jump right in, since this has been up behind you already. So I'm going to place us here in the American Southwest for reasons that will become clear in just a moment. Madrid, New Mexico, 1974. Two men stand on an empty desert road arms crossed in a twin gesture of solidarity. Their legs are parted in comparable boot-clad stances. Sly smiles extend across their lips. Like a textbook study in traditional perspective, the rain-soaked highway trails off behind them, disappearing into hazy mesas, an archetypal background for the American Southwest. But more important than the scenery are the protagonists standing in it. Two Europeans staging their desire to connect to this place. Blinky Palermo, who you see on the right, and his close friend, Emic Noble, come to the fore in a self-conscious play of figure and ground. Equal parts Jonathan Swift, Alexis de Tocqueville, and Carl May. The strangers in a strange land quality of two cowboy costumed German artists in the desert raises questions as to the circumstances of the image's production. So a little background. 
Palermo and Nobles had embarked upon a cross-country road trip in the summer of 1974. Though this wasn't Palermo's first excursion to the United States, or even to this region, it was nonetheless significant, coming as it did on the heels of his having moved to New York in December of 1973. And even before settling in the city, Palermo had visited New York with Gerhard Richter in November 1970. They had stayed near Times Square and conducted studio visits with Malcolm Morley and Robert Ryman, to whom they had been introduced through gallerists in Dusseldorf. They met with curators, including the Guggenheims, Diane Waldman, who brought them to a party for David Hockney, which I guess um, was quite impressionable. Uh, they dined with James Rosenquist at a restaurant atop the Marriott Marquis, also impressionable, it seems. Late night forays to the Harlem Jazz Clubs, um, popular at the time, were not uncommon. As Richter has recalled, quote, we had booked 14 days with a travel agency, a cheap flight and a cheap hotel. After 10 days, we returned because we were so exhausted and tired from all the walking, walking, walking. We had had enough and felt for the first time that we were Europeans. We felt a little proud. That was a great experience. We felt European. We were different." End quote. So it's unclear the extent to which Richter here speaks for himself alone or also for Palermo as Palermo left few notes about his life or his art. Um, and I would say somewhat parenthetically that this is a, a source of great frustration for those working on him. And I think also um, perhaps part of the reason why his reception in this country has been so halting despite his early um, almost unilateral uh, recognition in Germany and in Europe more broadly. But in any case, uh, Palermo returned to America three years later after this uh, first trip with Richter, which makes it in 1973, this time staying in the country for the better part of a month so that he and his then wife, Kristen Heisterkamp, could meet again with Waldman and Ryman and also tour Chicago, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles, where John Knight proved a hospitable guide from his perch in Venice Beach. Palermo also met with John Baldessari and Michael Asher, two notable conceptual artists. This holiday, in fact, left such an impression that Palermo shortly decided to move to New York. Indeed, with his dealer, um, who you see picture here, um, Heiner Friedrich's blessing, he would live and work in New York, and this what he would call really his adopted home until 1976 with periods of residence in Europe maintained throughout. But back in July of 1974, to return us to the initial photograph, the path to Madrid began actually in Houston, an origin point claimed for a pilgrimage to the Rothko Chapel. Palermo is reputed to have entered the sanctuary early in the morning to avoid the unforgiving afternoon light. He sat alone and watched the paintings as the sun rose and brought them out from their pre-dawn obscurity. Following this seemingly epiphanic event, Palermo and Knobel borrowed their friend Helen Winkler's Chevy Blazer and took off for Albuquerque, New Mexico. There, they contacted another friend, the artist Susan Grayson, 
with whom they shopped at Trinidad's Western Wear, um, which is where they bought the hats and the cowboy boots and the other paraphernalia that you see in the picture, um, before commencing the drive to Santa Fe, where they saw Agnes Martin's watershed um, and at that point newly printed cycle of 30 screen prints, which is called On a Clear Day from 1973 at the Santa Fe Museum of Art. Um, and I can talk more about this if this is um, relevant or interesting in questions, but I think this is actually quite significant that they saw this. It was a print series that was the first work that Martin had done after herself leaving New York and traveling actually alone for a long period of time and then settling on a remote New Mexican mesa. Um, and as the story goes, she built an adobe house by hand and um, really stopped making art actually for quite a while. And it wasn't until she did this, this print series that she was effectively lured out of this kind of uh, retirement and she started making paintings the following year. But I think that for Palermo, um, who as I'll describe in a couple moments, had been experiencing something of a kind of artistic crisis himself, to see an art artist um, who had just come out of a really fallow period in such a significant way I think was um, really important for him. And again, we can, we can talk more about that if that's um, interesting. Um, but Madrid, a ghost town in this larger expanse of near funerary wilderness, presented something of a photo op stop along the way. With Grayson directing and snapping her visitors, posing amid the built and natural ruins. She used a Bell and Howell half-frame camera as a rejoinder to the technical perfectionism represented by Ansel Adams um, at the time and probably still, though she intended in her words um, in a recent email, quote, references to landscape painting, landscape photography, Walker Evans, documentary photography, the cowboy and Western movie genre, and Southwestern mythology, together with the road trip, uh, with the car in the background, with the open door, end quote, which hopefully you can see. I guess I don't have a pointer, but um, hopefully you'll see over Palermo's left shoulder, you see the car that they had come out of just kind of parked on the side of the road with the, the door open. And so she's very interested in this idea of the kind of on the road, the kind of travelogue. So after this episode, Palermo and Knobel subsequently continued west to Las Vegas without um, Grayson. She declined, fearing that she would get in the way of their quote-unquote hooking up with women. Um, so she, she left the party at this point. But it was as um, they continued on that they saw Walter De Maria's Las Vegas piece from 1969 and a test piece for what would become his lightning field, uh, which uh, was, I guess, finalized in 1977, as well as Michael Heitzer's double negative from 1969, all monumental and now canonical works of earth art. However impressive, then, the litany of sights, this voyage and the photograph that stands in for it here might not be worth further comment were it not for the fact that Palermo, who had moved to New York perhaps as a way to overcome an impasse, retooled his still stagnant process upon his return to the city after this trip. As Lynn Cook has noted, throughout 1974, he produced almost nothing or rather, he destroyed everything. In short, he had a fallow year. Um, and this, this comes up in, in many, many places, um, echoing similar sentiments. And he was quite uh, candid about this for friends and, and peers at the time. 
Yet, in 1974, he also began his metal pictures, elaborating upon the insights of the previous year's experiments with steel panels. He inaugurated the aluminum series with this, which is Times of the Day number one from 1974-1975, a pan to light that is undeniably influenced by his experience of light in the Rothko Chapel, as well as these paintings' modular sequencing. Up to this point in his career, his works, while distinct in material and operation, had overlapped chronologically in their manufacture. Thus did his objects, cloth pictures, and wall paintings and drawings coexist for many years as simultaneous and equivalently viable possibilities. And let me just show you an example of, of each kind of category. Um, hopefully most of you have gone through the exhibition already and you'll, you'll know these groups um, from the installation. Uh, but just in case or to remind you, uh, Totem uh, from 1964 to 7 is one of the objects which he produced during 1964 to 1974. The stuff builder, which are generally translated as, again, cloth pictures, were produced from 1966 to 1972. This one is untitled from 1968, and I think just a particularly luscious and gorgeous and subtle one. And I was actually happy because this is not really the best image of it, but it brings out, I think, the subtle variations and fabric that are more or less visible under varying lighting conditions. And then window, uh, and there's documentation for this as well in the show, which hopefully you've gotten to see, from 1970, and this is one of the wall drawings and paintings, and I'll talk more about this work specifically in a couple minutes. Um, but these were generally done between about 1968 and 1973. So again, the point being that he was incredibly diverse in his practices and working on these different bodies of work simultaneously for a very long time, although he sees production on all three bodies of work at the same moment um, right before he started making these metal pictures. So uh, with the metal pictures, like this one, which is Times of the Day 2, Palermo wiped the slate clean, or better maybe, he began again, having found a formal language capable of sustaining his full attention and in participating in a dialogue with conceptual painting as it was being undertaken on this side of the Atlantic. This, however, is not to imply that nothing about this last series recalls or was prepared for by what he had done the previous decade in Germany. To be sure, Palermo's projects have as their common denominator an investigation into the fundaments of painting as they bear on the space in which they are shown. Nevertheless, Palermo's thin, multi-panel, acrylic paintings on aluminum are distinct enough from their admittedly heterogeneous precursors as to warrant separate analysis of their development and display. Since these metal paintings were commenced and completed in New York, this is likewise to ask a very straightforward question, which is how should we understand Palermo's metal pictures as somehow being of their American milieu or, or not? This question, I think, is especially thorny given the ways in which Palermo had been conversant with a number of American pop artists, minimalists, and post-minimalists who were showing in Germany as early as the mid-1960s at galleries including Heiner Friedrich, 
and Conrad Fisher, and at art centers and especially the Documenta exhibitions in Kassel. He had also courted Americanness as such prior to his initial arrival in this country. Christine Mehring, um, who, if you actually, for those of you who haven't read this book, um, she's the author of a really fantastic book on Palermo. Um, she reminds us that, quote unquote, a number of German critics had already praised or disdained the American feel of his work before he ever left Germany. She continues, quote, Many of Palermo's German contemporaries felt threatened by the invading American art um, in these, these galleries and contexts that I just um, went through very quickly. But he was passionate about it and introduced a number of his Dusseldorf friends, including Richter, to the, um, to the New York School classics, um, end quote. And you can think here of Rothko or Barnett Newman or, or so many others um, who Palermo absolutely idolized and um, Knobel has said the same. Important, too, is the fact that Palermo, long before his decampment, had assumed an American name to inaugurate his career. He was born Peter Schwarze in 1943 in Leipzig. Um, he was adopted shortly after his birth um, by the Heisterkamps, who in 1952 moved the family, which included uh, Palermo and his twin brother, um, to Munster. When Palermo was 15, his adoptive mother passed away. In 1962, he enrolled in the Kunstakademie Dusseldorf, where he studied with Josef Beuys, with whom he started training in 1964. It was here, in the context of Beuys' um, inner circle, which was actually dubbed the Knights of Beuys, um, and this included um, Noble, Palermo, Richter, um, and Immendorf, that Palermo became Palermo. He was christened Palermo by his schoolmate Anatole, um, and the name stuck because of the artist's reputed resemblance. And there is some discussion as to whether it was physical or, um, or somehow about his personality um, to the American boxing promoter Blinky Palermo. And in fact, this Blinky Palermo was actually born Flank, Frank Palermo, and he got his name Blinky from the press as a kind of uh, derogatory thing uh, because they were referring to an eye infection that he had, and I guess when he was giving press conferences, he was blinking a lot, and so then the name kind of stuck. But beyond that, he was notorious for being the 1962 world heavyweight champion Sonny Liston's manager and also something of a gangster, and so I think this was appealing for a whole host of reasons. Palermo himself seems to have valued American cultural identification and exchange in all guises. A request to the Immigration and Naturalization Services to extend his stay in the United States until January 16, 1975, to set up his studio, reveals that his objective to delay, with, I'm sorry, his objective was to delay leaving, quote, so that I may complete my work on a set of drawings and other art objects which I have been making in the United States. He furthers in an almost anthropological tone, quote, during the past two years, I've made several visits to the United States to examine the art being made here, to talk and exchange ideas with American artists, and recently to create new artworks. The paintings and drawings I am making in the United States are different from the kind of art I make in Germany. I use different materials and media, and I find my work influenced by the country I am in." End quote. Boys likewise claimed for his student an inherent readiness to embrace his immediate environment, 
characterizing Palermo as a kind of medium. He described him as being, quote unquote, open to anything. His nature was also very porous. His receptivity was a very essential feature. Everything went through him. Comments like this abound. Still, to take Boys or even Palermo at his word might be a folly of intentionality, but to discount such statements would be equally irresponsible. If we look to the paintings themselves, they also tell a story of habituation. Resigning his habit of leaving works untitled, Palermo I'm sorry, referred to New York as a place as much as a psychic geography, and titles of numerous works from 1975, including Coney Island and Wooster Street. The following year, he began his epic to the people, oh, I'm sorry, I should have put this up before. This is a picture of uh, boys in Palermo from 1976, so some years later when they had reconvened. Uh, so what you see now uh, behind me is to the people of, of New York City from 1976, uh, a work which is typically and not, I think, undeservedly described as Palermo's um, magnum opus in the words of Robert Storr. As it happened, it was also Palermo's epitaph, completed shortly before he left for Kurumba Island in the Maldives, a vacation from which he would not return. Uh, he died, as probably a lot of you know, uh, very early at the age of 33. Um, and some people have you know, remarked on the, the kind of age of Jesus, and this has been pathologized, mythologized. Um, there's been a lot, a lot of writing about that, which I'm trying to avoid. Uh, henceforth, it was accorded the full power of retrospective summation, uh, kind of dedication to posterity, it might not have been intended to possess. It was discovered in Palermo's Dusseldorf studio, and you see an image of it here following his death, and shortly thereafter, it was shown at the Heiner Friedrich Gallery in New York, and then a decade later at the Dia Art Foundation, in whose collection it now resides. Painted following his return to Germany to the people of New York City, and here you see it installed at DIA a couple years ago, is an address from afar to the collective inhabitants of a city that he had by then abandoned. So to be clear, um, and I think this isn't, this isn't always talked about, although I think it's a really important part of the work. It's not actually clear that he would have selected this as a title for it, but on the back of this work, there is the inscription to the people of New York City. So that's, that's how the title has come to be attached to these panels. But again, we're not, we're not sure whether that title is something that he would have, um, that he would have designated or not. A heraldic 15 part room scale work constituted by 40 individual panels painted on metal in cadmium red, cadmium yellow, and black, clustered in groupings of three or four on the white walls. To the people retains traditional elements, such as the planarity and rectilinearity of painting, qualities dispensed with in Palermo's earlier objects, such as this uh, wonderful one, which hopefully, again, you've had a chance to see in person, Butterfly II um, from the late 60s, for instance, um, which decisively moves painting in the direction of autonomous objecthood, even as, a, as it retains references, however partial or oblique, to the world beyond it. In this way, um, and I think in the objects more generally, um, they, offer an interesting counterpoint to, to the people. 
Though it becomes more painting-like, and again, I'm referring to butterfly here, than these wall-bound, um, I'm sorry, though it, meaning to the people, becomes more painting-like than these wall-bound objects, such as butterfly, notwithstanding the rather unconventional choice of aluminum as a support, to the people has been understood both as non-referential, like other even less associative objects, including the tape-wrapped uh, blue disc and staff from 1968, and um, just as I say frequently, self-referential. Anne Rorimer takes the former position, writing that Palermo's choice of acrylic on aluminum serves to heighten, quote, the factual purity of the color-bearing paint, particularly as the artist applied the paint by hand as evenly as possible, mitigating the effects of gestural activity. Only the subtle striations or irregularities remain. So this play of unit against unit around the space unmoors to the people from, quote, representational obligation and floats it into the experience of non-mimetic color liberated from representation. And I would say, if, if you have a chance to see the show again, look at the brush strokes because they're actually remarkably um, kind of salient and I think that they're more present than any kind of image will obviously or necessarily convey, but there's a real kind of texture to these panels, which clearly gets lost in reproduction, but I think that's something to, to note that's quite important. Uh, Rorimer's reading contravenes the argument for Palermo's abstraction as being spiritually redemptive. It also situates Palermo within a broader framework of American conceptual painting practices that often expanded to make use of architectural settings. And I think here we could think of the work of Joe Baer, Robert Mangold, Bryce Martin, and Robert Ryman. Ryman, for one, had experimented with painting on aluminum as early as 1963 with a work entitled Points, though it remained unexhibited. Nonetheless, for his first solo outing at the Bianchini Gallery in 1967, he showed Standard, which you see here in a later installation in Cologne. And this work comprises 13 four-foot square paintings with loose horizontal strokes of swans down enamel paint on cold rolled steel panels, which he made um, in 1967. In his renegotiation of painting in the wake of abstract expressionism and through the more proximate scrutiny of literalism ushered in by minimal object production, for which I think the use of metal might act as a kind of morphological guarantee of the requisite industrial allegiances, Palermo faced challenges that were in fact generational. While this contextualization is certainly appropriate, there is much that its formalism negates. It neither acknowledges nor accounts for the specificity of Palermo's colors, not to say their particular inflection into the people's dedication. The colors are the traditional primaries with black substituted for blue, a reductivist model important for modernist abstraction, and even for Palermo's earlier works um, in this vein, like the composition with eight rectangles from 1964, which is very evidently inspired by both Mondrian and Malevich in this kind of early um, pioneering abstraction. Importantly, red, yellow, and black in combination are the colors found too, and I think probably most obviously, on the German flag. 
that they were conceived on a transatlantic flight back to Germany, which I'll, I'll come back to later, and painted on the occasion of the American Bicentennial by a German artist newly repatriated in the Rhineland after three years in North America would seem to matter a great deal. Additionally, the press release for To the People's inaugural showing and here I have an installation shot um, from, from here, um, at Heiner Friedrich Gallery states that the work, quote, deals with a concept in which Palermo became interested while investigating a scheme of color used by the American Indians, quote unquote. This conjecture is nowhere credited. Um, it might have been recommended by his association with the incredibly shamanistic Yosef Boyce, who had recently commented on America's westward expansion in his own piece of 1974, I Like America and America Likes Me, uh, which is a piece that takes a coyote as a central metaphor for the devastation wrought by, wh by white settlers. Or, more proximately, it might have been directed by Palermo's own well-documented interest in American Indian color schemes. The Cheyenne, Zuni, and Hopi symbolically attributed this combination, along with white, to the four cardinal directions in the sky. And Palermo would um, make many works that played with these, um, these colors and combinations, and in fact referencing these ideas of the cardinal directions. Here you have the cardinal points from 1976, um, and in fact in one installation from the same period, also from 1976, actually he used one color in each corner of a gallery, so uh, yellow was in the east, white was in the north, red was in the west, and black was in the south, and so this was a kind of recurring uh, motif for him. But looking back over Palermo's projects, beyond the site-specific wall drawings and paintings, which take as their object the exhibition space itself, many projects, maybe even most, are subtended by elements of the kind of non-art environment, whether 14th Street, Native American mythology, butterfly wings, or the department store. And here I'm, of course, thinking of the fabric that was used for all of the cloth pictures. And many drawings um, as well quite unambiguously depict their subjects, including scissors um, and women watching television. A number of these are reproduced in the catalog. Palermo here comes close to Ellsworth Kelly in a way that I think bears some attention, who had this to say about his own work from 1949 of Window Museum of Modern Art Paris, a constructed relief that took its proportional and compositional directives from a window casement. So this is Kelly. He says, in October of 1949 at the Museum of Modern Art in Paris, I noticed the large windows between the paintings interested me more than the art exhibited. I made a drawing of the window and later in my studio, I made what I considered my first object, window, Museum of Modern Art, Paris. From then on, painting as I had known it was finished for me. The new works were to be painting objects and in his, um, in his kind of lexicon, there's always a, a slash between them and these words are, are stuck together. Unsigned, anonymous. Everywhere I looked, everything I saw became something to be made and it had to be made exactly as, I, as it was with nothing added. It was a new freedom. There was no longer the need to compose. The subject was there already made and I could take from everything. It all belonged to me. It was all the same, anything goes. So with this idea of the anything goes, 
Kelly contended that his new aesthetic was to be predicated on the appropriation of something, um, really anything, from the world at large. Imported into art as an already made or given composition, it be traced and newly counted as a picture. But despite Kelly's permissive posturing, anything did not really go. Unlike a Duchampian ready-made, his work would be made, and meticulously so, and it would stand apart from the world of objects out of which it was appropriated. Kelly was therefore reluctant to show the window, even though it was then known as 276 Tableau Objet in the West Wing of this same museum, for fear that the closeness of the work to its compositional source would have been too obvious and kind of given the whole game away. The point for him instead was to sever the referential tie so that a one-to-one -one correlation between the object and its image could not be exhumed. For what Kelly meant by anything goes was that any referent could generate a so-called painting object that could harbor its indexical link without actually picturing it in a naturalistic way. By contrast, Palermo's window, which I showed you very briefly a bit ago, uh, this is from 1970 to 71. It was um, put on the wall in 70, and then the exhibition continued into early 1971, um, produced um, and Bremerhaven precisely redoubled the gallery's front window in black paint and at a large scale on an interior wall. Spied from the sidewalk through the window so that the template um, for the wall painting, much less within the I think, parameters of the gallery space itself, the window stood in such close proximity to its source that there can be absolutely no mistake as to the abstract form's derivation. If for Kelly the referent was to go missing, as the image appeared as a holy manifest given, for Palermo the point was not the pressure exerted in using architecture against itself and keeping in Kelly's terms both referent and painting object together to further draw attention to this parasitic relationship. In Palermo's own terms, this act was comparable to a quote-unquote stamp. So again, just to be really clear, Kelly wanted to have a, a, an object from the world become the basis of, of the composition, but he just didn't want you to be able to follow from A to B and to see what the source of the composition was. But Palermo, in fact, wanted precisely the opposite. He wanted to keep these things as absolutely close together uh, to show exactly the the pressure that he was exerting on that original object. Still, looking at the metal pictures that predate to the people, Palermo's strategy actually at, mo at moments moves closer to Kelly's. The six works in the Times of the Day series, for instance, share a format comprising four square panels painted on aluminum, each of which includes a central strip of color, as you see here, on the top and bottom edges. Um, and here, for instance, you see uh, sky blue rimming tomato red, goldenrod flame frames clover green. Other times of the day sections are equally winsome, but their colors look decidedly muted next to the turquoise and royal purple, mint grass and green grass, um, sorry, grass green, lemon yellow and valentine pink of Coney Island 1 and Coney Island 2 from 1975 as well. These colors, I think, are, as you can see here maybe, decidedly more garish and potentially thus referential to the Brooklyn beaches 
boardwalk culture than are those in the former. Um, and here is just a great um, shot of him with a number of women um, at Coney Island. The times of the day do not so much literally or representationally calibrate the passage of time as provide discrete, sensible registrations that are only tenuously relatable to the fugitive light of their title. This is all to say that in the Times of the Day series, Palermo forgoes direct address in favor of illusion. By contrast, the Coney Island pictures, which again you see here, as well as other multipartite paintings on metal completed around this time, secure relations to place as nominalist functions of enunciation. Nothing is redolent of Coney Island, Wooster Street, or 14th Street per se in the paintings of these titles. However, Palermo created association by designation. All the same, the manner of paint application obliged by the metal support likewise establishes a relationship with street signage more generically. Um, and I think uh, this is really interesting. David Wright, I'm sorry, David Reed has likewise written of a conversation with John Knight in which Knight remembered Palermo having talked about these works, um, the metal pictures, in relation to the I-beams in the subway stations in New York, which I guess at this time were getting painted as part of like a city beautification project. So that could have been a point of reference for these as well. The metal pictures thus events a move from self-reflexive site specificity continue with it, continuous with its architectural surrounds. So this would be something like the, the stamp of the window painting. To a present organization of space based on the suggestion or inspiration of it from somewhere else. This brings us back then to the larger and more ambitious, to the people more particularly, since it, more than any other of Palermo's projects, and certainly more than um, the other metal pictures, seeks to structure its environment wholesale, as it were, to create space, or so I'm trying to argue. Partly attributable to its massive scale, which, which requires at a minimum, I'm sorry, let me get you back to that, some 3,500 square feet of gallery space and almost 1,000 linear feet of wall, to the people bars a single vantage point from which its atomized panels would unite. A yellow border on a red square might become a yellow field bordered by red, but the next panel brings in black, so initiating other combinations not predicted by those that had preceded it. To the people thus never coheres or produces a sense of resolution. It is marked by a far from arbitrary, if still ultimately inexplicable, episodic chain, leading from the introduction of black on the right. Um, and this is something that you can see here, a number of these panels. If you look to the panel that's to the far right of any of these groupings, they'll oftentimes incorporate black, and black will kind of set the rhythm for what happens, um, which is also interesting because we're so accustomed, of course, to reading left to right, but these in some ways suggest that you read them right to left because of this repetition of the black on the, the right panel and then kind of following its conclusions outward to the left, although even with black being the kind of origin point for so many of these, they don't kind of track out in similar ways. And this is what I mean about them being somehow ultimately inexplicable. Like you can, you can look at them forever and there will never probably be a logic that will assert itself. And I think that's very much deliberate. Um, and in fact, the way that I would suggest us thinking about this is through the work of the mathematician, Rene Thom, 
and his method of geometrically exploring dynamic systems with discontinuous behaviors, which is to say his theory of catastrophe. Indeed, only a year before completing To the People, Palermo submitted a text on dynamic systems called from a then recent newspaper article explicating Tom's theory in lieu of a self-penned statement for the catalog of the 13th Sao Paulo Biennial, where Palermo's metal pictures were exhibited for the first time. Thus, Palermo presented his new paintings to their first audiences alongside the article titled Mathematics for Catastrophes, a Theory on Spontaneous Events, Manifold Applicability by Ralph Trammell. In this article, he explains Tom's contributions to the field of differential equations, chiefly how Tom accounts for discontinuous processes. Such processes had previously been excluded from existing explanatory frameworks on the basis of their being erratic, even though the drive to disorder is constant, but it is nonetheless hard to predict when a cataclysmic event will occur. And such processes are ubiquitous in natural events. So an example that he gives is that water um, starts to boil even though the, the influx of heat um, has been consistently steady, but at a certain point that will just kind of produce the boiling water. Um, so Trammell talks a lot about this, this theory of catastrophe, and let me just quote one, one part of this. He says, Tom's theory focuses not so much on exact numerical registration of discontinuous processes as their qualitative, geometrically interpretable description. This makes it possible to grasp biological process or social systems in terms of models. And then he, he gives, it's, it's quite long and um, I won't, I won't bore you maybe with all of this, um, but let me just read one other part uh, where he goes on to discuss the various, um, there are seven in all, graphic renderings that Tom classified. Um, so he gave all of these different kinds of catastrophes, different uh, names and notations. For instance, the fold catastrophe, the swallow tail catastrophe, and the butterfly catastrophe, among others. So he talks also about the second achievement of divergence. And let me just quote one more section. Divergence refers to the fact that even small changes in the present can have tremendous effect on future development. The distinction between the exact and the not exact sciences is based on the fact that the former are not divergent, at least so far as the mathematical background is concerned, and this state of affairs protects them from surprises, at least in theory. This distinction is wiped away by the theory of catastrophes. By integrating divergent processes into mathematical theory, scientists can make more accurate predictions in the non-exact disciplines. The theory of catastrophes represents a great advance towards making the non-exact sciences exact. Okay, so there's much to say about this text and also I think Palermo's privileging of it. Um, again, you have to bear in mind the fact that he hardly ever produced artist statements and in fact, um, you know, even the fact that he gave this text in lieu of an artist statement was its own kind of statement. Um, but beyond that, I think it's important that Trammell points to the importance of Tom's reliance upon figures, that is the organization of data into visual form with weight seated to representational composition as a way of communicating otherwise unintelligible matters. Most critically, perhaps for our purposes, catastrophe theory and the larger rubric of chaos theory from which it emerged to further account for decreased predictability 
It's predicated upon small changes in system parameters leading to qualitatively different equilibriums. As a result, marginally different starting conditions or seemingly trivial shifts expressed thereafter can result in radically different system behavior. Well, I think this has obvious metaphoric application to the exigencies of Palermo's biography, his adoption, education, travel, relocation, and eventual, and this is the, the phrase that always gets used, death in the tropics. It also proves crucial to, for, for to the people as a work that explicitly acknowledges its connections to a place. For, in this work, phenomena unfold in unpredictable ways, which, by which I mean to suggest that one panel's composition does not obviously follow from what precedes it. Glean through catastrophe theory's insights, however, such excursions become knowable. The unfolding of a system's behavior over time is capable of evolving into different states that are predictable only if one understands the principal logic in which slight perturbations and underlying parameters can produce dramatic shifts from one equilibrium state to another. As it turns out, Palermo's process for To the People differed from that of the other metal pictures and that he sketched out the entire installation before painting the individual panels. And here you see um, his notes for this. So in contrast to his professed habit of changing the painting process mid-course, he knew exactly what he wanted to do with To the People and I would argue um, in advance of its um, actualization, he also knew what he wanted it to kind of do, how he wanted it to function. Um, so this is actually the earliest surviving sketch uh, of this working out of the sequence. And it was uh, drafted in felt pen and pencil on a blue airmail paper. And it indicates that he probably started to draft this on his return flight to Dusseldorf in mid-1976. So what's interesting also to note about this is that Palermo preserved mutation across space, wrenching it from the confines of a single panel, which is what he had been doing previously, and upholding randomness as an artifact of sequence and the accumulating attendant meanings. Boys once revealed that Palermo, quote, wanted to create order in any area reaching as far as he could manage, in some environment, say, a museum, where he moved something on a wall, for instance, with color. You see a few structures and levels of order, which he put in some kind of a spatial concept to make something palpable. The way he imagined the order of a world that is created out of art. It was certainly a message. It was definitely a kind of protest." End quote. I would agree wholeheartedly with boys insofar as to the people is concerned. Its premeditated social dimension is predicated upon a kind of contract, experience for order. But this is an order that flaunts its apparent illogic and portends the catastrophe for which its almost too perfect surfaces serve an apotropaic function. In Boyes's language, though, Palermo's creation of order would remain a necessarily impossible protest, the lesson of catastrophe theory being less about the maintenance of order, apart from its dialectical other, than about the nature of predictability given precisely such foundational chaos. 
to the people's colors there from the start, conceived as you see here on a transatlantic flight home, no less, are neither arbitrary nor inconsequential to the propositions that to the people offer. The colors of the German flag, they are a cultural ready-made. And again, I think we can think of something like Jasper Johns' flag for a close parallel, which does not mean that they forgo intent. Thought in concert with the title, to the people's colors and to make a model of exchange, both wished for and, and impossible. As Lynn Cook has stated, Palermo's return to Germany at this time marked, quote, a moment when the artist had returned home in retreat, if not defeat, after almost three years of institutional marginalization in his adopted country. It is hard to believe that as he confronted the very roots of his difference, his independence, and his predicament, a certain self-regarding wryness did not his inflect his decision to dedicate this work to the inhabitants of a city that, I'm sorry, a largely indifferent metropolis, end quote. So I must admit, um, by way of conclusion, that I have come to regard to the people, and I'll put that up one last time, more or less fondly, as being somewhat akin to the Riley's distantiated image of Palermo in the cowboy getup with which we began. Still, the summons to a specific place is, ironically perhaps, the first such work to fully inscribe a place to make of it, in Boise's terms, something palpable. Thanks. longer than I, I should or, or thought that I would with all of my digressions, but I'm really happy to answer questions for, um, I, don't, I don't know how long, or I, I'm happy to stay all night. Um, okay. Hi. Um, he had heart failure. I mean, it's, and this is precisely what leads to this kind of um, romantic, tragic rebel. In fact, a lot of people equated him even with James Dean, and Julian Schnabel made a painting um, about about him and the death in the tropics, but um, essentially hard living. And so people have also kind of wondered whether it was a suicide. I mean, I think that, I, I actually don't think that that was the case. I think it was, it was um, unforeseen. And in fact, one of the things that I love about this installation is that I think that although within the context of the, the short, however many 13 years of production that he had in his life, this, this necessarily is this kind of, you know, as I said, magnum opus in some ways, but I don't think it would have been the end. And, and downstairs, I am really grateful for the fact that after you see to the people, you also see one gallery that shows the work that he was very much in the midst of producing at the time that he died. And I'm sure there would have been many directions that could have come out of this work. Um, and I actually don't, don't see it as being a kind of like spectacular, um, you know, intentional death. But it has been the source of much speculation. Yeah, hi. It is, and I'm trying to see if I even have it in my notes. I should probably know that off the top of my head, although I, I, I doubt that I do because I'm horrible with dates. Um, yeah, because I know I have this. I know I have this actually in, in something else. Uh, I don't know it off the top of my head. I apologize. I don't know if anyone else here remembers. Not sure. 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I think that size is incredibly important for him because he is so intimately aware of architecture. And in fact, this is what I was trying to suggest is almost like the kind of common denominator among these otherwise quite disparate types of production is precisely their relation to um, reliance upon and so on the gallery situation, not just as a kind of neutral background, but as something that he makes his works interact with, bring into focus, etc. So I think he was always thinking about whether or not he was directly painting on the walls, as was the case with the, the, some of the wall drawings and paintings. I think he was always very aware of the wall as a support that was active in its own right, but also thinking about kind of site-specific site-specific concerns in terms of what the eventual exhibition context for these works would be. And in fact, um, you know, I mean, he was even thinking of to the people in terms of a New York gallery situation, and so that's why it's important that it was shown there. After after these works were discovered, but I think a lot of these were thought out very specifically in relation to where they would be shown, and so size was important in, in that respect. Um, I also think that he was very aware of, of spacing. I mean, I, I talked more about sequencing than spacing, but I think these things obviously work in, in tandem frequently, um, but I think that there's something about certain works that exist, for instance, within our kind of like peripheral view or how monumentality or the lack thereof is produced. Um, I also think that he, because he was so interested in some of these series of paintings, whether it was like the Stations of the Cross or the Rothko Chapel, he was very aware of of, of size and scale and how those things worked when you had multiple panels together. So I think all of these things were, were deeply considered. by a piece uh, which you didn't show most of the time before. Vertical sticks, round painted, angled. Yeah. It seemed to be a bit of an outlier in the exhibit in a way. I wonder whether you make more of that work. Not exactly like that. I mean, and I think that's what's that's what's been, I think, um, I say challenging, but I think partly what I think maybe flip around is so interesting about the work is that he was an artist for whom like, there was not a style, and he was constantly experimenting, and that's, again, to get back to this earlier point about the work that shows where he left off after to the people. Um, I think that he was always kind of working through various, various kinds of, of trials, some of which stuck and some of which didn't, and in fact, the metal pictures in some ways are, you know, quite odd in the course of the career because they are something that he did exclusively for the years that he was working on them. And the rest of the time he was doing, as I was trying to, to say, you know, all these different projects simultaneously or these different kinds or classes of objects. But even within them, as you can see from the selection on view here, there was a great range within even, you know, the, the objects. There was a huge disparity between one object to another or among among groups of objects. The other thing that I didn't even talk about here, which there's a fantastic essay in the catalog that I would direct you to by James Lawrence is his works on paper, which is something that of course is not so much represented here, but 
represented a huge, you know, portion of his output. And he's even more, I hate this word like experimental, but there's even more kind of play or uh, there's a real sense of mutability expressed in that format where you see just every range of, of um, trial imaginable. So I think that it, and, and out, there's not so much a thing like as an outlier. I think these are all kinds of iterations of, of possibilities kind of coexist simultaneously. Hi. That's a great question. Um, I wish Lynn was here. I would ask her. Um, but I know that a number of them were in galleries that had a lot of natural light. For instance, the, the window that I showed you, that whole front of the gallery is, is a window. Um, he did a lot of things that had, I'm trying to think, a lot of things that were in situations with natural light, and that was very deliberate. Um, but in terms of actually leaving notes behind as to lighting, I've not seen any. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. I don't know, Evelyn, I don't know, I don't see where you're sitting. I don't know if you've come across any of these. Um, I'm not aware of them. I mean, that doesn't mean that they don't exist, but I've definitely not come across anything like that. Um, but I mean, I imagine, I imagine that the, um, I mean, the, the specificity of the works for him did have so much to do. I mean, as you can even get from the title times of the day, I mean, the idea that they would not be static, but that would be somehow enlivened or rendered open precisely by changing lighting or other kinds of conditions, I think would have been structurally important. But again, I don't, I don't know that there are any, any documents to that effect. It's a, it's a really interesting question, actually. Michael Asher. And Michael Asher. Mm -hmm. So I was curious, uh, did you know more about that Exactly, exactly. Um, some of them he had met, well, he had actually met John Knight and Michael Asher, I'm not sure about Baldessari, when they had been in Germany. Um, and so that was how he had made the contact, was actually like on his home turf, as it were. And so I think that was partly actually what inspired him to go to LA, was that he already had been introduced to them and was interested in their work. And I know he'd seen at least one piece that Asher did in Germany before he came to America even the first time. So it wasn't even just that he had kind of met them socially, but seen them 
when they were there in the context of installing their work or participating in shows. Um, but I, I don't know, David Reed in um, an article that he has written that started as an artist talk that he gave at DIA, which is in the another DIA book uh, on To the People, has more details than what I've talked about tonight and a lot of what I've been saying has come from his research. He's done an incredible amount of research into this trip, but I haven't actually interviewed any of these people about it. I've just kind of pieced it together from secondhand accounts, but I do know from various sources that it was, I, th I think it was frankly social, that I mean, they were just people who he'd met and they, they were, you know, doing a road trip. But the other part of it that I think is maybe more like serious or scholarly than that is that he seems to have had a real interest in American landscape painting and that the landscape piece downstairs I think is really interesting. And um, this is something that I actually am working on now, although I'm not quite sure what I'm eventually gonna say about this. But he apparently would go around to collections in New York wherever possible and see, you know, like Hudson River School painting and was very interested in American landscape painting. And his interest in going to the Southwest had a lot to do with this kind of idea of like the American frontier and the landscape and this tradition of painting. So, I mean, I think there were obviously a variety of reasons that they took this trip. And as Susan Grayson has led on to me, I mean, they were definitely, I mean, Vegas was to party and, you know, so there were, there were different parts of the trip probably for, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question also because um, some people have made the comparison to the late works of Mondrian that he produced while he was in New York, um, clearly under the sway of, you know, the, the boogie-woogie and all of that. So, um, so it's a really, really important question, but there's not, I, I've not come across anything more specific than him frequenting these, these jazz clubs, but nobody really makes mention of what kind of jazz. And again, this is one of the hard things about, about this body of work is that there's all these tantalizing threads, but he wasn't, it's not like there's a, a diary kind of stashed away or, um, you know, I think a lot of the kind of information of this sort has been pieced together by a lot of you know, interviews with friends of his or things like this. Um, but it's interesting because Robert Ryman, who of course was one of his really good friends, was, um, you know, a musician. And so, I mean, there's there's all of these ways that I think you're, you're totally right to point to this idea of music and syncopation and, and how this might translate into visual terms, but we don't really know, like, exactly, like we don't, it, it, I don't know. Again, I have no idea. It would be pure conjecture because there's no no record left behind. I mean, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I think what's so interesting about this period of him being in New York is that is this well, even I mean, as I was trying to suggest, what happens before where he so identifies with America and Americanness and changes his name and um, you know all all of this kind of Western-looking. Um, stuff that goes on. So, I mean, I, I have to imagine, at least in some kind of perverse way, that he would have loved Warhol and loved what Warhol represented, even if kind of morphologically or in terms of the work, 
who knows what he would have thought of it. I, I imagine it would have been seductive, at least in some way. But it's total, you know, total conjecture because there's no no record of any of this. But I mean, I will say that, I mean, I guess if by process of um, exclusion, I mean, Warhol was not one of the people who he was meeting with when he was making these trips to New York or, um, you know, staying with in, in the 70s or anything like that. All right, well, thank you guys so much.